This is Python Bytes, Python headlines and news delivered directly to your earbuds. It's episode 5, recorded December 5th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by Rollbar. They take the pain out of errors. This is Michael Kennedy, your co-host, along with Brian Aachen. Hey, Brian, how's it going? Uh, it's going really good today. Yeah, it's, it's another week of exciting news in the Python world. Yeah. Um, well, let's get out started right off the bat. All right, tell me why. <laughs> tell me why. Awesome. Um, there was an article, The Five Whys of Request 2.12, 2.12. And um, I I thought this was a great article because it um, um, apparently in version 2.12 that came out November 15th, they're already up to 2.12.3 now it, on December 1st. But there's a, I think that they broke some people. Um, there were some uh, corner cases, the non-standard ways to use requests that that was supported before. There's some reasons why they needed to change it. And this is um, this is a good article. I think it's put up to try to limit people from getting mad first so that they try to understand from the, the uh, library supporter point of view why they made the changes. And it was just re- really well written. It is well written. And uh, it gives you a look inside of how challenging it can be to write software at this scale. I mean, the request itself is not a huge piece of software, right? It's not like Django or something like this or OpenStack, one of these really big, big projects, but it's used so incredibly widely. Request is downloaded 7 million times a month. <laughs> Think about that. Yeah, and I it may be one of the largest because of how it's being used by everybody. I mean, not large in size, but large in... Huge footprint. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the problem was the current release of requests, that is the the 2.12 version, breaks anyone who uses a URL scheme, that's the little part before the colon, that is not HTTP or HTTPS, where it used to sometimes sort of work. (laughs) So people were kind of tweaking that. And it, it has to do with a bunch of stuff internally, right? They're moving to different like domain resolution things inside and so on. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, it's it's basically the article talks about how hard it is to maintain software. Like if you have software that's used as, as widely as requests, there's like no part of it being touched. And I think the takeaway was uh, more or less two things. One, make sure that your validation and error checks are little extra picky right like they said the the root of the problem is that they they kind of didn't check strongly enough for these things initially and so stuff was able to work through and they said if if you make your checks really rigid it's easy to roll them back but it's very problematic to put them forward and the other takeaway was find a maintainer of your open source project that you love and give them a hug (laughs) (laughs) definitely it's not an easy job no it's not an easy job you know speaking of people that I want to hug. There's a guy that I had on the show on Talk Python a while ago, Matthias Bossonnier. I'm probably messing his name up a little. Sorry, Matthias. He's from the Jupiter Project at UC Berkeley's Institute for Data Science. And, and he works on Jupiter and IPython notebooks, things like that. And this article is not super new, but I haven't talked about it before. And I, I really thought it was kind of timely again, you know, the it came back to be relevant. And I think it's going to continue to be relevant over the next few years. It's more about a mental shift than it is about anything else. And the article that I want to talk about is called Planning an Early Death for Python 2. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we've had this whole Python 2, Python 3 deal over over, um, 
Thanksgiving break. That was last week, and we talked about that and so on. But this is not so much about whether or not we should be teaching people new things. It's, it's about how we perceive and talk about Python 2 versus Python 3. So I'll just read you a little introduction here, just paragraphs. It's out of the discussion. So this, this is a group, a workshop that they met at the Berkeley Institute for Data Science, a bunch of data science folks. So they're coming at it from that angle. It says, out of the discussion arose a topic that's long plagued the Python community at large. Code that requires legacy Python 2.7 is holding back the development of data science tool sets and by extension, the progress of data science as a whole. They convened this small working group to plan an early death to Python 2, or as they call it, legacy Python. And so they came up with a few things concretely that they can do. And I think the most important message here is to choose your words carefully. So instead of talking about Python 2 versus Python 3, talk about Python versus legacy Python. Oh, nice. So when you talk about, when you say Python, say, well, I mean Python 3. Like, what would you be talking about, right? And when you talk about Python 2, it's legacy Python. Refer to legacy Python in the past tense to reinforce its old and deprecated state. Uh, let's see. Make your, your examples in your documentation Python 3 only. So if you're doing something with, like, asynchrony, you know, use async and await keywords, right? Things like this. If a user uh, sends you a bug to a library, ask them to reproduce it on an up-to-date version of Python. And make sure that, of course, you know, when you have continuous integration, your tests run on Python 3 as well. So I, I really found this article interesting, and it's, it's about the, the mentality of it, right? If, if people at conferences and people who write and, and maintain libraries start referring to Python 2 as legacy Python, and they start calling Python 3 just Python, and they assume you know, like that's the way the documentation is written, I think it would have a tremendous effect on the adoption of Python 3 over a couple of years as people come into Python, as they come into these new libraries. If you, if you start to hear, oh, this thing I'm using is called legacy. Well, wait a minute. Maybe the, I should stop using it, right? Yeah, and one of the things, I don't know if they, they touch on this, but one of the reasons why if you start out supporting Python 3 and you if if you are start out uh, current Python, um, and wanted to try to help support um, older versions, it, it doesn't add to clarity to your code. I mean, it, it you'll have to not use some features that are like new and awesome, and that's um, that is problematic to try to support old libraries or old versions of Python. You can't use some of the new stuff. Yeah, I totally agree. It's it's a really well written article, and I'm I'm probably not doing it justice, but I I love the mental shift of. We have Python and we have legacy Python. Yeah, and I even I, I kind of even like the idea of like it's totally okay to have some stuff that doesn't support Python two seven. Um, if you don't want to support it, uh, it's up to you. Yeah, uh, well, for example, the Beware project coming along that's that's a good example. Oh, okay. So they're they're only on Python three. Yeah, they're just doing so. Python three for their code. And Beware is doing amazing stuff. Interesting article called uh, "Simplifying Complex Business Logic with Python's Canren." That sounds cool. What's Kenren? I had never heard of it before I read this article, and um, it's it's a library that helps with um, some some uh, logic coding. And I still am having a, I'm going to have to play with it a bit because I'm having a hard time getting my head around it. However, it looks like a lot of stuff that some people use. Um, I mean, traditionally people use spreadsheets for or some of the uh, data analysis stuff, but it's it's for people that are using. Um, it's written such that I think it's more readable than some of the data analysis stuff. It's written more business friendly, I guess. I see. 
And uh, like they they have an example in the article that um, actually I love that uh, it's a Simpsons uh, example. If you give a whole bunch of a data set with whose parent is who in the Simpsons, then you in and you call it a relation. It has a whole bunch of different things that you can say. These this piece of data has a, a relation or a fact or there's a couple things. Uh, you can just have sets of sets of data and um, ask questions about the data, like who's a person that has two children in The Simpsons and or things like that. Basically, a different way to ask questions about your data, as far as I can tell, a way to ask questions about your data that's different than some of the other methods I've seen before. You know, I like different ways to cut at different problems, so... Yeah, it, it looks really out. yeah yeah it looks really cool and it it, it looks like almost like a, a knowledge base. You set up all these facts and relationships between them, and then you can ask it all kinds of questions. And I, I think it's, I think it's pretty awesome. Yeah, um, and I, I don't know what type of problem I'd need it for, but yeah, another tool in your tool belt. So. Yeah, yeah, tools tools are good. Tools are good. You know, before we talk about the next set of tools, actually, let me tell you about our sponsor, Rollbar. Thank you, Rolvar. That's, that, we're really happy to have you guys on board. And Thank you. The TalkPython websites handle almost 2 million dynamic HTTP requests per month and transfer 4 to 5 terabytes of data. And yet I deploy them frequently. I don't worry about whether or not they're up and running. I have some basic server monitoring. And if anything goes wrong with the app, Rollbar is going to send me detailed information to my Slack, my email, all, all sorts of things. And it comes with all sorts of info already there. So you can probably fix the problem before you even like have to debug it or something. So it's great. If you guys want to check out Rollbar, please go to rollbar.com slash Python bytes and sign up for the free tier. You can plug it in in a few minutes. Sounds awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. Okay. I don't hope you have errors, but you know, you want to be sure that uh, when you do, it's easy to solve them, right? All right, so speaking of web apps running that are that are pretty cool, one of the larger implementations or deployments of Python is Reddit itself. So Reddit's, you know, often referred to as the front page of the internet. Maybe that's Facebook these days, I don't know. But Reddit has definitely got a lot of traffic, that's for sure. And it's built on some of the older Python technologies. So pylons, Mako templates, a custom non-OR version. So the core part of SQL Alchemy, right? And I'm sure there's tons of other stuff going on there as well. So there was this question or discussion on Reddit says, if Reddit were written from scratch today, which Python web framework would it use and why? I don't know. I just, I feel like the sense that I, when I talk to people and I I listen to what people are doing with web frameworks. It's it's either Flask or Django, Flask or Django, Flask or Django. And, you know, my stuff's built on Pyramid. I, I really like Pyramid. I think it's it's kind of a nice Goldilocks framework between the two that I was mentioning. And I thought it was interesting that a, a bunch of people came out and said, well, obviously Pyramid's the right choice for this, right? So I'll give you a few uh, sentences from what people said. So I would say the most sane option would be Pyramid. It's faster than Django and TAS, and it doesn't repeat the mistakes with thread locals that Flask or Pylons did in the past. I did some both small and medium to big, you know, say 20 million plus user web apps, and it just feels right. It doesn't get in your way, and, and it will give you magical solutions to your problems. It's great. Another guy said, assuming you're talking about Reddit at its current scale, not Flask, too many global variables, not thread safe for async, not Django, too opinionated, everything's in-house for scaling reasons. My guess is Pyramid. In fact, that's what Reddit's current services are built. And they link to a GitHub thing that is a foundation of their services. And the takeaway was basically, you know, around this discussion that the web frameworks cause a lot of strong subjective split in opinion. Yeah, I, I just thought it was really interesting to see a lot of people coming out with this 
with this pyramid recommendation because I hear flask versus Django so often. Yeah, and that's often what I hear too. And then, um, and I saw this, and it was surprising to me, but I enjoyed reading about it, and um, and it also prompted me to try to find some time to go through your course because don't you teach pyramid in your uh, course? Yeah, I do in my Python for Entrepreneurs course. It's definitely a pyramid. Cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah, thanks. Next up, I've got actually I'm going to bundle these. I've got two testing related articles, um, and I was tempted to just have these be two different articles on this, but um, I didn't want to take over the entire podcast or testing, but um, there's a, there's a getting started with PyTest that's from, I'm going to get his name wrong, but it's, he goes by Jacobian. What's, who's uh, Jacob, Jacob Kaplan Moss. That's it. I, one of the things I like is uh, it's not a, it's not a silly, he does, it's a simple example, but it's also a real example using some, uh, some things that are hard to, um, hard to just visually tell whether something's right or wrong. He also goes through um, and uses, looks at test parameterization, which um, is very useful if you're into testing. The second article is the best new feature of unit in unit tests you didn't know you needed. The feature that isn't highlighted in the title is subtest. And subtest was added in Python 3.4, but I haven't seen very many people blog about it or talk about it. Like if you have a list of things that you're testing within a test, like a whole bunch of data points you're checking for, um, if the f- normally if you just iterate through them, the first one that fails will stop your test. But subtest is a way to say, I want all of these to be checked uh, or everything within this loop. Oh, that is that is really cool because sometimes you create a unit test and you're like, well, there's so much, I've sort of got it ready, but there's actually three things three separate sort of things I need to verify to actually verify this case. And I could use subtest for those, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, using it, you can fail a part of it and that part of it will skip out and not continue, but it'll go on to the next subtest. And it's a pretty cool thing. Uh, I know since I'm a PyTest fan, uh, you can run unit test with PyTest. You, unit test, written test with PyTest. Uh, Py, PyTest will run subtests, but it doesn't uh, highlight out the individual failures as subtest does. So um, that is one of the breaking, if you're writing unit tests that you want to run with a PyTest runner, subtest might be something you want to, might want to avoid. One, if you're looking, if you're running in PyTest, you'd probably use uh, parameterization anyway for the same problem. So the last one here I have for us is just just a fun one, right? So imagine you're running a meetup or a conference or, or some kind of hackathon and you want to have some music playing because I don't know about you, but the right kind of music along with coding is like the perfect mix. So there's there's this jukebox type thing called Pytone. Now, by no means is Pytone new, but uh, I haven't talked about it. People recommended it to me. So um, Kid Pixo, who runs the Geek Cookies Italian developer podcast sent this over and said, Hey, you guys should check this out. This is fun. This, let me just give you a, uh, a quick little summary of what this, uh, this screenshot here and, and you pull it up. You, I'm going to have you describe it to me. I'm going to, I want to set the stage the, under the screenshot here. It says, this is how Python 197 looks in action in the 80 by 25 terminal. <laughs> so this is the terminal based iTunes type of thing. Brian, what do you, what do you think of this? Um, actually, I kind of like it a lot. It's neat. It's neat, right? Like, imagine you you could project this up on the screen during breaks while you have music playing, and it's it's really a terminal based 
with progress bars and playlists, everything, little uh, music players, cool. Yeah, and it's it's it looks nerdy. So yeah, um, there's that. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's why I said you should do it at like a, a geek conference, right? It would be perfect for that. <laughs> yeah. Um. Also, uh, I, I think it's neat to see an, an a a maintained curses project. Yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, use of curses as well. Like if you want to want to build an interesting kind of more interactive GUI, terminal based GUI, I guess it, it's cool. All right, that's it. That's it for our our headlines this week. It's been I, slightly less interesting than last week, but nonetheless, a lot of cool stuff coming along. A lot a lot of good news to share with you, Brian. You got anything going on you want to tell everyone about? Well, I've put out. Um Last week, I was uh, trying to get uh, two two episodes out of testing code and did. So I got a episode 25 uh, talking about Selenium with Dave Hunt and also PyTest and working at Mozilla. Yeah, that was a good one. And then uh, uh, 26 was uh, a new tool called that I hadn't heard of before called PyREST Test and got the uh, developer on to talk about that. And it's a REST API testing framework that uses... Um, uh, YAML uh, to describe the tests. It's pretty cool. So, oh, very cool. Yeah, I'll definitely have to check that out. YAML seems to be coming along for all sorts of things around REST. We've got it for uh, Swagger for like automatic API gener- uh, documentation generation and testing uh, as well. It sounds like that's cool. Yeah, and my first reaction for to YAML stuff is why do we need something else? But it is. Um, it it seems like it's more human readable than some of the other options. So. Yeah. Well, as long as we stay away from XML, I'm happy. <laughs> How about you? What's going on with you? Yeah, not so much. Just uh, working on like the entrepreneur's course that you you talked about. I'm going to ship a couple hours of new content there uh, after we hang up here, and I, I can get a chance to upload it and organize it and all that. So I'm just you know, life's good. Nice. Love working in on all the Python projects I got going on. Wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, everyone, thank you for listening, Brian. Thanks for uh, sharing the headlines with me. It's been fun. Thank you. It has been fun. Yeah. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to Python Bytes. Follow the show on Twitter via at Python Bytes. That's Python Bytes as in B-Y-T-E-S. And get the full show notes at pythonbytes.fm. If you have a news item you want featured, just visit pythonbytes.fm and send it our way. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. On behalf of myself and Brian Aachen, this is Michael Kennedy. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.